think like a Christian is to think in line with God's revelation. What you choose to think about will determine your actions, your habits, your character, and ultimately your destiny. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series titled Six Steps to Spiritual Stability. A man once said, You are not what you think you are, but what you think you are. In many ways, both principles can be said about the Christian's thought life. What you think about reveals who you are and whether or not you are truly in Christ. Scripture tells you to set your mind on things above. Well, today, Tom will continue to explore Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, focusing specifically on what the Apostle Paul has to say about the mind of the believer. What do you set your mind upon? Does your character and conduct reflect what you think and say? And what does the Bible say about sustaining and guarding your mind? Well, Tom, in a world consumed with expressing various ideas, thoughts, and belief systems, it really is important for Christians to guard their minds, isn't it? It is so important that we guard our minds. Now, it's important to realize that we live in a world of ideas And those ideas ultimately trace back to either God or to Satan. All of those moral ideas that are out there, thoughts, philosophies, they have one of two sources. And so we need to guard our minds because as the proverb says it so clearly, guard your heart for out of it flow all the issues of life. And so we need to make sure that our our inner man is directed and shaped not by the philosophies of the world, but by the word of God. Thanks, Tom. And friend, open your Bible and let's join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. It was in 1948 that Richard Weaver wrote a book entitled Ideas Have Consequences. Perhaps you've heard of that book or you've read it. Certainly you've heard the expression, ideas have consequences. What Weaver was saying in his book is that ideas don't usually stay ideas. They eventually develop into action, into behavior. If adopted, those ideas can transform not only an individual life, but even an entire culture. You probably never heard the name of Peter Singer. But Peter Singer is a professor at Princeton in the Center for Human Values. He teaches practical ethics to undergraduate students there. He's has sort of an unassuming look. He looks more like Mr. Rogers than a member of the academic elite. His credentials and his reputation, however, are unassailable in today's world and culture. The New York Times writes of Peter Singer, no other living philosopher has had this kind of influence. The New Yorker says he is the most influential philosopher alive. The New England Journal of Medicine says there has been that he's had more success in effecting changes in acceptable behavior than any philosopher since Bertrand Russell. Now perhaps you're thinking that, well, he must be weighing in on the key cultural debates of our times, issues like abortion, issues like same-sex marriage, but he's way beyond those. In fact, 
he sees those as absolutely givens. Listen to some of what he's teaching a new generation of this nation's cultural elite in the halls of Princeton. In the article, he was quoted as saying that any kind of fully consensual sexual behavior, any kind involving two people or 200 is ethically fine, including necrophilia and bestiality, were a couple of the ones cited. The interviewer asked him some other questions. The interviewer says, so what about parents conceiving and giving birth to a child specifically to kill him, take his organs, and transplant them into their ill older children? Horrific. Listen to Singer's response. Well, it's difficult to warm to parents who can take such a detached view, but they're not doing something really wrong in itself. Well, is there anything wrong with a society in which children are bred for spare parts on a massive scale? The answer was no. In the article, he affirms that it's okay to kill one-year-olds with physical or mental disabilities. Though, he says, ideally, the question of infanticide would, quote, be raised as soon as possible after birth, end quote. The article goes on to detail more of the philosophy of Peter Singer, and it is absolutely frightening. It's frightening to all of us, I think, because we understand that if that kind of philosophy is embraced, then the behavior will soon follow. The acts will soon come. You see, you and I can immediately see the connection between that mindset and the ethical behavior that will follow after it. Sadly, because of our fallen minds, it's much more difficult for us to see the equally clear link between our thoughts and the behavior that will ultimately follow them. But the link is every bit as real as the link between Peter Singer's thoughts and the behavior that will come. You see, your thoughts have consequences. What goes on each day in the six inches between your ears is the most important thing about you. If I could get inside of your mind and somehow project those images on the screen that go through your mind day after day, all of us could predict with a high degree of certainty what your character will become and what your destiny will be. What you think will determine what you are. As one person said, you're not what you think you are, but what you think you are. The Bible puts it this way, Proverbs 27, verse 19, says, As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects man. Your thoughts reflect who you really are. Proverbs 23, 7 says, As he thinks within himself, so he is. Our Lord, in Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19, points out that when we sin, our actions are not because of what enters into our body physically, but because of what our minds digest intellectually. In the early days of computers, you'll remember they used to talk about G-I-G-O, that is, garbage in, garbage out. If you think garbage, you will be garbage. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus traces our sinful behavior back to the spring from which our behavior flows. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he traces murder, which most of us would never think about, back to the thought of hate. He traces sexual sins of all kind back to their spring, which is lust in the heart. That's why the familiar proverb says, sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, 
reap a character, sow a character, reap a destiny. You see, how we think defines our character. It determines our future, and it directs our destiny. Scripture has so much to say about the role of the mind in the Christian life. But the one passage in all of Scripture that has the most direct application to the issue of right thinking is Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Now let me remind you of the flow of this passage. You remember that these first nine verses of Philippians 4 are a unit. Their theme occurs in verse 1. We're we're reminded of what Paul is addressing here. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. This passage is about spiritual stability. Paul wanted that for the Philippians, and he wants that for us. To be spiritually stable, not tossed everywhere, but to have a real spiritual maturity and stability. Well, verse 1, Paul says, I want you to stand firm in this way. You see, what he's about to teach us is how to be spiritually stable. And the verses that follow, the rapid-fire commands that follow verse 1, outline the path to spiritual stability. In verses 2 through 9, Paul identifies six specific steps to spiritual stability. We've examined the first four. Let me just remind you briefly of what they are. In verses 1 through 3, we saw the first step is to resolve to live in harmony with other Christians. Resolve to live in harmony with other Christians. That's where spiritual stability begins because we get so much of our strength and stability from those around us. That's by God's design. That's why he uses the image of a body to describe the church. Interrelated, interdependent parts. So if you're going to be spiritually stable, you have to start by being in harmony with other believers. The second step we saw was in verse 4. Determine to face life circumstances with joy. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. No matter what comes, no matter what circumstances God sovereignly brings into your life, determine to face them with joy. In verse 5, we found the third step. Make it your ambition to be known for a gentle spirit. The word gentle meaning gracious, a gracious spirit. A gracious spirit shows humility. Humility is at the core of being spiritually stable because God promises to give grace to the humble. Verses 6 and 7, we saw the fourth step, which is talk to God about everything. Talk to God about everything. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now that brings us to the fifth step to spiritual stability, and it's found in verse 8. Choose to think about the right things. Choose to think about the right things. Verse 8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. You see, spiritual stability is about thinking. Now, there are a lot of unbelievers who think that believers don't think. Christians tend to think, or unbelievers tend to think of Christians as being devoid of deep thought. But the truth is, 
It's their thinking that is twisted and distorted. Listen to what God says about the minds of those who have not yet come to know Him. Romans 1.28, He says their minds are depraved. 2 Corinthians 3.14, their minds are hardened. 2 Corinthians 4.4, their minds are blind. Ephesians 4.17, their minds are futile. That is, they're worthless. They're pursuing absolutely worthless things. Ephesians 4.18, their minds are darkened. Colossians 1.21, their minds are hostile toward God. Colossians 2.4, their minds are deluded. Colossians 2.8, their minds are deceived. Colossians 2.18, their minds are sensuous, that is, driven by their own sensual desires. 1 Timothy 6.5, their minds are depraved. 2 Timothy 3.8, their minds are corrupt. And Titus 1.5, their minds are defiled. That's what God thinks of the minds of those who have not come to know Him. In fact, look in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19. You remember we met this group who professed to be Christians but aren't. And it says at the end of verse 19, they set their minds on earthly things. That's a description of us. That's what we used to be. Our minds used to be darkened and blind and depraved and defiled and hostile toward God. But then in that amazing event of spiritual life, when God breathed spiritual life into our souls at the moment of salvation, that event called regeneration, God opens our minds he opens our minds at that moment to understand the truth of the gospel. Matthew 13, 19. Hebrews 8, 10 says He puts His law into our minds. He writes His law, as it were, on the hearts. And 1 Corinthians 2, 16 says He's given us the very mind of Christ. That transformation of our minds that occurs at salvation, that transformation that begins the moment we believe, initiates a lifelong process in which our minds are gradually renewed and our thinking patterns are changed by the Word of God and the work of the Spirit. Let me show you this. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. After Paul has set the stage in describing the amazing realities of the mercies of God, that is, God's mercy to us in salvation, God's mercy to us in justification... He says in verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And then he says, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world. Now what does that mean? It's a very interesting expression. Literally it means, don't allow your mind to be pushed into the mold of the age. That's what it really says. Don't allow your mind to be pushed into the mold of the age in which you live, the values and the mindset that characterize the age in which you live. But instead, be transformed. That word transformed is the word from which we get our English word metamorphosis. Be metamorphosized by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove the, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Colossians chapter 3 verse 2 says, set your minds on things above. When God saved us, He changed our minds. He allowed us to see again. He allowed us to understand the truth again. It begins a process that continues throughout our lives, a process of being renewed in our minds. Our minds play a crucial role 
in our faith. In Matthew 22, you remember the words of Christ. He says, love the Lord your God with all your mind. In 1 Corinthians 14, verses 14 to 16, Paul says, pray with your mind. And he says, this is interesting, sing with your mind. This morning when we lifted our praise to God, did your mind engage? Paul says, sing with your mind. Another author writes, too many people go to church not to think or to reason about the truths of Scripture, but to get their weekly spiritual high, to feel that God is still with them. Such people are spiritually unstable because they base their lives on feeling rather than on thinking. Now, why is it true that if you base your life on emotion rather than thinking, you're more unstable as a believer? Well, John Stott, in his book, Your Mind Matters, warns about living by feelings. Listen to what he says. Sin has more dangerous effects on our faculty of feeling than on our faculty of thinking. Why is it that sin would affect our feelings more than they affect our thoughts? He goes on. Because our opinions or our thoughts are more easily checked and regulated by revealed truth than our experiences. It's a lot easier to hold your thinking against the standard of God's Word than to hold your experience. Your feelings are prone to a lot more misleading. We must choose, Paul says, to think, and to think rightly. In fact, this whole issue of thinking determines whether or not you're a believer. It shows, I should say, it demonstrates whether or not you're truly in Christ. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Paul lays down in Romans chapter 8 a dichotomy between those who are Christians and those who aren't. And he says in verse 5, those who are according to the flesh, that is, who are unregenerate, and you'll see that as this passage develops, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not able, even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You and I must choose to set our minds on the things above, as Paul says in Colossians 3. That's the issue in Philippians chapter 4. When we come to Philippians chapter 4, Paul is saying, choose to set your mind on the right things. And he says, spiritual stability is the result of how a person thinks. This morning, if you would characterize yourself honestly as not being spiritually stable, then I can promise you that a great deal of the problem is how you think and what you choose to think about. Keep your thumb in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to come back there and look at it in detail in a moment. But turn to Psalm 139. David underscores this point. In Psalm 139, verse 23, these familiar words, we even sing them in a familiar tune. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Now, there are a couple of conclusions we can make from those verses. The first, and this is a really a frightening thought, is that God knows our thoughts. In fact, you go earlier in Psalm 139 and it says God knows our thoughts from a distance. The idea is God knows our thoughts before we think them. Every thought you would ever have 
in eternity past before he ever created you. God knows our thoughts. But there's another conclusion in these two verses, and that is that any real and lasting change in our lives must begin with our thoughts. David says, God, ransack my heart, look at my thoughts, and then I'll be able to pursue the everlasting way. Real, lasting change starts within with our thoughts. Now that brings us back to the text of Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. He begins verse 8 with the word, finally. Now I know some of you think that's a word preachers use just to give you some hope that they're about to finish. But that's not at all what Paul is doing here. The word finally means he's approaching the end of this sort of brief list of commands to become stable, and he's introducing a fresh idea that has no relationship to the verse right before it. And in this verse, as he introduces it, we have a grid, if you will, a grid of eight virtues that are to regulate what we allow between our ears. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you must think like this. Now look at the list. You'll see that, first of all, there are six specific criteria. Whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, and of good reputation or repute. And then there are two general sort of overarching summaries. He says, if there's any excellence... And if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. You see, these are the rules. These eight virtues are the rules God has set down for a thought life that honors him. Now, ultimately, this verse can only be perfectly fulfilled by thinking about God's word. God's word is the only thing that perfectly meets all of these. But if that's what Paul meant, if all Paul meant in verse 8 was think about God's word, he could have said that. He could have said, think about Scripture. So why does he give us this list? Because Paul lived in the real world. I think sometimes we forget that. We think that, you know, Paul lived in an ivory tower somewhere and he didn't face what you and I face. Paul lived in the real world, and because of that, he knew that we have to think about things other than Scripture. And so he teaches us how to live in our world and think in God's. Let's look at these specific qualities. Our thoughts are to be true. This refers to what is genuine and real instead of what is false and pretense. In fact, there's an interesting use of this word in Acts chapter 12. You remember the story of Peter, how he's put into prison and the angel comes during the night and frees him. In verse 9 of Acts 12, it says, Peter went out and continued to follow and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. The word real is our word true, because he thought he was seeing a vision. So our thoughts are to be real, the real thing. What does that mean? Our thoughts are to conform to reality. Our thoughts are to be true. They're to conform to reality. So many people allow their minds to focus on their worries or their fears. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, they live in an imaginary world of fear. But there's another application in our culture, and that's the issue of amusement. Now, there's nothing wrong with amusement in and of itself. It has its place. But, folks, the word amusement is an interesting word. To muse means to think. Ah is a negative. It means not to think. Doing something that doesn't cause you to think. It's okay to have a little bit. It's okay to give your mind a rest. Including Christians live in imaginary worlds of fiction and fantasy. 
whether it's in your mind, in a world you've created in your mind, or whether it's an unhealthy dose of novels, or of television, or of movies, or of computer games, we must choose as Christians to think primarily about what is true, that which conforms to reality, as opposed to that which is unreal and imaginary. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his current series, Six Steps to Spiritual Stability. Tom will have part six for you on our next program. Do join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our email address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. That's 1-877-577-WORD. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. We thank you for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.